Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today's Tuesday, February 20th, day 137 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here in our Jerusalem offices with editor David Horowitz. Hi, David. Hello, Amanda. The United Nations Security Council is meant to vote today on a resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. We'll hear about the United States' counter-resolution and the nuanced differences. Opposition leader Yair Lapid submitted a new version of a draft law targeting ultra-Orthodox conscription. Will it actually go anywhere? We'll hear about how the Attorney General responded to the idea of restricting Arab Israelis' right to worship on Al-Aqsa over Ramadan and learn about a new troubling video from Hamas documenting the kidnapping of the beautiful red-headed Bibas babies. All this and much, much more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. The United Nations Security Council has scheduled a vote at 10 a.m. local time in New York, which is 5 p.m. in Israel, for a resolution pushed by Arab nations demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. At the same time, the United States has proposed a rival draft of the resolution that would underscore the body's, quote, support for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza as soon as practicable, based on the formula of all hostages being released. David, what do these differences in terminology mean to you? That diplomacy can be extremely nuanced and complicated, and semantics are crucial, and um, nobody really knows what the word ceasefire means and lots of other things. So, you know, the, the resolution that apparently will be voted on shortly as far as we understand, and as the United States has made clear, will be vetoed by the US, which is not seeking an immediate end and permanent end to the fighting. I think that's the bottom line. I think that's the bottom line. Whereas that resolution does seek to bring the war to an end, um, which the United States feels would leave Hamas still somewhat intact and potentially capable of carrying out October the 7th type slaughter again. And that is something that the United States has said it will not support and will not give its assent to. Uh, whereas the Amer- American resolution, which I imagine um, is not final uh, uh, at this stage, but, but you know you don't know how these processes are going to play out, 
is being seen in some quarters as a significant shift in the American position. I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, certainly, as you described it in your introduction, it doesn't sound in that language like something that Israel would regard as radically unhelpful uh, and as departure from American support. The return of the hostages, a temporary ceasefire, one should add, you know, when practicable, if those are the kinds of words that wind up in a resolution, I think Israel wants to bring this war to an end once Hamas is defanged and once the hostages are safely returned. So we have to see how this plays out, but you have to be incredibly careful in understanding uh, what the language is saying and meant to say. And by the way, you know, we're, we're seeing this a lot. This is a, a war that is very hard to report. It's very hard to get to the truth. But it's also even hard to understand what people are saying in talking about the war. The British Foreign Secretary has said lots of things about ceasefires and urgent ceasefires, but not immediate ceasefires and sustainable ceasefires and so on. Lots of uh, efforts by people in seeing themselves as being in difficult political positions, certainly including the US administration, certainly including uh, both sides of the leadership in Britain and so on. And therefore, lots of very complicated linguistic formulae, which are allowed for with, you know, with words like ceasefire and truce that allow various meanings. Let's return to Britain. And in fact, on Sunday, British Labour leader Keir Starmer called for a lasting ceasefire between Israel and Hamas and said the fighting must stop now. So his comments seem to indicate a toughening of rhetoric because previously he'd resisted pressure from within his party to call for a, quote, immediate ceasefire. And instead, he's talked about a sustainable ceasefire. So in the Labour Party, we're seeing these by-elections, and it appears that a Muslim uh, wing is rising up against Starmer's stance. But what do you see playing out here as well? Look, it's the, the British version of uh, some of the domestic pressures that we see in the, in the US, where uh, the president in the US is very supportive of Israel, empathetic to Israel, and facing re-election with constituencies in certain key areas, certainly, that he does not want to alienate, even though he knows they have positions that are not shared by him as regards Israel and the Israeli war against Hamas. In Britain, too, uh, the Labour Party, well ahead in the elections, but uh, has constituencies, and you know, the, in the British constituency system, there are, there have been a couple of by-elections. There's another one coming up, uh, which happens to be in an area where a Labour Party that is, <laughs> I would say, necessarily empathetic to Israel, uh, is going to lose support among voters who are highly unsympathetic and unempathetic to Israel. And this is Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, who gets considerable credit for trying to marginalise radical Israeli hostility in the Labour Party and trying to boot anti-Semitism from the party that he took over from Jeremy Corbyn is trying to somehow square, I think probably an impossible circle, but trying to do so, trying to minimize the alienation of voters he needs uh, to keep his party rolling forward and hopefully winning elections as far as he's concerned without abandoning Israel. And therefore the language is changing as he tries to find what may well not be a, a possible middle ground. Let's turn back to domestic politics. And yesterday, opposition leader Yair Lapid submitted a new version of a draft law under which those who evade military or civil service will no longer be eligible for state funding. This, of course, comes on the heels after regular IDF soldiers and IDF reservists' mandatory service period was temporarily extended by the Knesset. I'm hearing 
from even members of the coalition that they're they're breaking ranks over this. And do you see this new draft law heading to some kind of reality? Well, not only has the IDF in a kind of semi-emergency process uh, called in people earlier than they were expected to go in and uh, is moving towards re-extending military service to some of the links that it used to be in the past, but it seeks legislation to to make that change permanent. To, to, for example, uh, men used to serve three years, it was cut. The plan is to bring it back because the army has greater needs. The government legislation on uh, military service and the exclusion of um, most ultra-Orthodox Jews and m- many Arabs from military service is beginning to wend some kind of way through the Knesset at a time when that divide, which has been around for you know decades is at the forefront again because if you you know just to quote people that, that that are speaking out on this from most sectors of Israeli society soldiers are on the front lines and are risking and in many cases losing their lives to protect this country and yet you have two communities and it rankles most especially I, I think in the mainstream that you have a sizable and the fastest growing, Uh, sector of the Jewish population, largely evading, avoiding service. And for all the arguments that the ultra-Orthodox spiritual and political leaders make about their full-time Torah study being an essential layer of protection for Israel, those arguments don't resonate with much of the population. And even less resonant um, are those arguments when it is clear that there are a proportion of ultra-Orthodox young men who do not serve in the army, and do not study Torah full-time. So even if one was to endorse, in principle, the notion of having some people study Torah, there are people who are doing neither. Uh, And within the ultra-Orthodox community, some, including in the political and the spiritual leadership, have said, this is not tenable. Either you're studying Torah full-time, or you're doing some form of national service. The national mood, I would say, is, well, mass Torah study is not tenable either in an Israel that is fighting for its life. The Orthodox Jewish tradition down the centuries was for the best and the brightest to keep Torah study vibrant and and uh, and cutting edge, if you like, subsidized by the rest, not for almost an entire community to be subsidized by everybody who isn't ultra-Orthodox. And therefore, as you say, when uh, Yeshatid, the opposition uh, party, wants to advance legislation to address this substantively, it is, shall we say, there is more resonance. And potentially, I don't know, Amanda, if people within the coalition are going to support this and oppose the government legislation, but it is incredibly fraught because people are dying here and they don't feel that the burden is shared in any remotely uh, equitable fashion. What rankles, I think, is the time and the existential threat on the lives of those soldiers who are on the front line and, you know, obviously fighting this war. But I think one thing that I'm noticing is that Finance Minister Betsala Smotrich, for example, is trying to push through some more benefits for those reservists who are serving. And of course, I don't know if most people know this, but uh, soldiers who are fighters do get many benefits after their service, including an increasingly subsidized university education. It's the idea that they're putting their lives on the line for the country versus the time. Would you agree that this is the most rankling point? I think the fact that uh, you know soldiers, uh, like I say, are on the front line and in some cases losing their lives, while other people 
who are subsidized by the mainstream, which by the way is in the mix as well, but it's, you know, it's not the, the finances of it. It's the failure uh, to, you know, to, to, to get under the stretcher, as the Hebrew idiom has it, to, to share the imperative and the burden. Um, you know, this whole country was attacked, this whole country is under threat, and not this whole country is rallying to its defense. This was always galling and rankling. Uh, it's become untenable. Let's go to a short break. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Attorney General Gali Baharav Miara reportedly cautioned against a proposal by National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir to impose age limitations on Arab Israelis who wish to pray at the Al-Aqsa compound atop the Temple Mount during Ramadan, saying that such a step would likely face legal obstacles. Now, age-based access restrictions to Al-Aqsa are routinely applied in periods of security tensions to West Bank Palestinians and East Jerusalemites who are not Israeli citizens. But what about for citizens? Is this unprecedented? First thing, we don't know what they have decided or are going to decide. Um, and the Attorney General indeed raised a, a fairly, sounds like fairly narrow legal concern that this would run into obstacles at the High Court, which would say you can't ban your own citizens from freedom of religion in, in, in the country. I think the wider question is why on earth um, the government would want to do this. And to take this just a little bit forward, we you know we we have a story now which is based on leaks from the meeting, the, the cabinet meeting at which this was discussed, and at which reportedly Prime Minister Netanyahu acquiesced in principle to Ben Gvir's demands for restrictions over the objections of the head of the Shin Bet, who warned that this was I don't I'm going to exaggerate what he said, um, you know, in, an incredible own goal. What he said was it risks playing into the hands of Hamas. What do we mean by that? We need to take one little step back and recognize that something unfathomably terrible happened on October the 7th, and Israelis were slaughtered, and Israel then went to war against Hamas in Gaza. It's incredibly complicated. We talk about it all the time. There is a second front on the northern border where there is potential for escalation all the time. Uh, we watch warily what else Iran is up to. Uh, the West Bank is certainly uh, heating up, and there is potential escalation there, which Hamas is trying to uh, encourage. It is also trying to stir up trouble in East Jerusalem, and it is emphatically trying to stir up trouble within Israel. And the whole October the 7th onslaught was, was named by Hamas as Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, which was an overt effort to try and assert some kind of religious legitimacy for the mass murder of Israelis, Jews and Muslims. You know, we, sh we should stress that. Well, it hasn't worked, right? It hasn't worked as of you and I speaking now. 
Israel's Arab citizens, in contrast to 2021, for example, when there was deadly violence within Israel, and it was connected to Al-Aqsa and controversy about rights and and access and and legitimacy of claims and so on. Well, in 2024, Israeli Arabs have not mobilized to a violent surge in ostensible defense of Al-Aqsa. That has been a Hamas failure. And the Shin Bet concern, the head of the security service responsible for trying to keep things calm, uh, um, said to the ministers in this meeting two, three days ago, we shouldn't be doing this. This is asking for trouble. It seems to me (laughs) beyond dispute that that is the voice of logic and common sense. And the the idea that Itamar Bengvir, who is a pyromaniac, who goes to the Temple Mount to stir up trouble, who is hostile to Arabs, I'm going to put that incredibly mildly, you know, in a normal country, well, this has you know, never been a normal country, but in, a, in, in, in Israel with a normal leadership, the prime minister would say, well, of course, we're not going to restrict access to our citizens to their most important place of prayer. By the way, the most important place in all of Judaism, we should stress. And why do I say that? Because that's what Netanyahu has said, of course, in years past. Uh, in an election campaign not too long ago, he said, you know, Itamar Ben-Gvir wants to stir up trouble on the Temple Mount and set, set out all the things that Itamar Ben-Gvir wanted to do. And said Netanyahu, I'm not going to allow that, not even if it means that I'm going to lose an election, right? And yet, we understand Netanyahu was acquiescent, empathetic to an outrageous demand opposed by the security services. Uh, we have to see how this is going to play out. You hope, despite experience, that common sense and, and national interest will assert itself and soon regarding this. We don't actually know what Netanyahu said because there's no official protocol to the meeting, but the statement that he uh, released on Sunday was so ambiguous. It said something along the lines that the premier had made a, quote, balanced decision that allows freedom of religion with necessary security limits, which have been set by professional officials. So I think the question remains, is this all just some kind of publicity stunt for the prime minister? Well, it's certainly a publicity stunt for Itamar Ben-Gvir. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, I've, I've heard that assertion, it's a publicity stunt by the prime minister. To what? To make sure that not all right-wing votes go to Itamar Ben-Gvir? To yeah. appease Ben-Gvir, right. to show that he's still the right-wing leader. And to alienate most sensible thinking Israelis and cause tremendous potential damage to Israel. Uh, Seems like a pretty bad publicity stunt if that's the case. And the statement is indeed, you know, as constructively ambiguous that it's not a compliment as he could have made it. So we wait to see already, of course, the very fact that Itamar Ben-Gvir is able to claim A, B, and C, that he's achieved this, that this is what's going to happen that this has not been slapped down by the Prime Minister means the trouble is already percolating. Let's end with a very sad piece of news. The IDF on Monday released what it said was recently discovered footage showing Mother Shiri Bibas and her two very young red-headed children surrounded by gunmen in the Gaza Strip hours after they were abducted by Hamas-led terrorists on October 7th. The IDF has expressed serious fears over the captive family's health. The boy's father, Yarden, was kidnapped separately and is also still held in Gaza. David, first of all, describe the clip. What are we seeing here? It's um, some very grainy footage 
retrieved, I think, I'm not sure that the army has said this, but uh, you will recall that they've, uh, the army's been operating in Khan Yunus um, and, has, uh, and, and elsewhere in Gaza and has accessed uh, Hamas data centers and computer servers and so on. This is some kind of surveillance footage, I think, in eastern Khan Yunus, certainly in Khan Yunus, very soon after uh, the family, Shiri and uh, Ariel and Kfir Bibas, were abducted. And you see them in various stages of that initial arrival in Khan Yunus. You see Shiri clearly. You see that uh, a, a kind of sheet is wrapped over her and around her. You can see Ariel's little head poking out, as the army spokesman described it. And the assumption, the credible assumption, is that Kfir is being held by Shiri in, in some kind of um, sling close to her, close to her body. Uh, and you see them being walked, surrounded by um, numerous terrorists and being transferred. Subsequently, you know, it's it's fairly brief footage, it's fairly grainy, uh, but you can see what's going on there. It shows, again, as the army spokesman said, that they reached Khan Yunus alive. And then everything else that was said was deeply troubling because the army spokesman, uh, Daniel Hagari, I think tries to be as credible and and straight uh, as he can um, with material like this. How could he be anything other than? I don't really want to repeat this, but he was asked, how, why aren't you saying, or how? why don't you know, or do you know whether they're alive or dead, or worse to that effect? And he said, you know, we don't have definitive information. Remember Hamas claimed weeks ago that, um, that uh, Shiri, Ariel, and Kfir uh, were dead. The army said it has it. It could not verify that information, and uh, uh, the spokesman said exactly the same thing again last night. But other things he said, you know, he said we're very concerned for the fate of Shiri and the children, and um, that's that's a significant statement. Uh, we should also add that this footage was shown to the world at the request of the families. I don't think that the I'm I'm, I'm certain there was no um, push by the army to show or not to show, but rather an upholding of the public commitment by the army to share all the information that they have with the families of the hostages. So they got this material and they shared it with relatives of the Bibas family. And the Bibas family asked that it be shown to remind the world uh, of the fate of their loved ones and the imperative to bring them out. They are holding a press conference today and please look at our live blog for continuing coverage of this story and everything else. David, thank you so much for these updates today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please stay tuned for another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by Ben Wallach. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode or any other, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, Shalom. Shalom.